I tried to put it in a box and not think about it. I didn't tell many people about it because nobody understands what it is anyway, including the people that are supposedly researching it. So yeah, my confidence has come back, but only very recently. And also I think because the 10 years is up, you know, the guy that told me that I'd be dead by now, well, screw you, pal, uh, you know, I'm not. Hey everybody, Robbie here, joined by my co-host Francesca Stutley. Today's episode is recorded with Alison Craig out in the field. Allison was a former BBC radio presenter and on her way to a career in TV with the BBC until something profound happened to her. On this episode of This World is Mental, we explore the mental side of that transformation and how she got on with it. So without further ado, here's Alison Craig. With mental stories and mental outcomes, you're listening to This World is Mental with your hosts, Robbie Thompson and Francesca Stutley. So what happened? What, what was going on? Uh, well, I was running through life, you know, with a smile on my face in a very optimistic way and uh, everything seemed to be going very, very well. And uh, yeah, I was basically my lung collapsed and then my other lung collapsed and I found out yeah. unexpectedly that I have a very rare lung condition, um, which literally stopped my life at that moment and, and you know took a couple of years to to rebuild after after the shocking revelation as it were. So had you been ill before that? No, fit as a butcher's dog. Used to do everything. I was a, I was a runner, I was a skier, I was, you know I mean I wasn't a particularly good runner or a good skier, but I was just your average person health wise. I didn't have any issues at all. I never got colds, I never got flus, I never got anything respiratory problems at all. So that it really was a, a bolt from the blue, yeah. So one day, you, where were you? you literally um, I was, I was literally, um, at that time I was working in the One Show, which is a show in the UK, um, and I was due to go away filming and I had a, a, an irritating cough more than anything else, nothing dramatic, uh, but it was really bugging me, you know, because it, it was just interrupting my sleep and all the other things that, you know, your day to day. So I just went along to the doctor as a matter of course to say, can you help me, give me an antibiotic or something to, to chill this off because it's doing my head in. And uh, he was a young doctor, which I'm really glad about because I think if it had been a, you know, a grumpy old cynical doctor, he'd have probably gone to shut up and get out of my surgery. But this guy said, uh, he listened you know, with the stethoscope and he said, do me a favour and go down to the hospital. And I thought, this is odd. But I didn't really freak out because I didn't feel any, you know, I didn't feel particularly unwell. So... Um, he said, go down, get an x-ray, and don't leave until they give you the results. And I thought, that's odd. So I drove down to the hospital, and they tried to send me away after the x-ray, saying, oh, no, no, you don't wait for an x-ray, you know, or you do, but usually about six months. And I said, no, I was told to wait until, it, you know, today, I need yeah. to find out the result. So I was having this kind of discussion stroke argument with the girl at reception and uh, suddenly this guy came around the corner with a wheelchair and put me in the wheelchair and sort of wheeled me off and oh I was I couldn't believe what was happening you know yeah. so um, well the first thing I did was phone give them a number to phone my husband who came around to the hospital because equally you know he got a heck of a shock um, and obviously phoned work to say, you know, you better count me out, there's something going on. Yeah. Um, and then started the, the, the journey, if you like, yeah. So, so did your lung collapse that day then? It was already half collapsed, but I didn't realise that. Normally you would expect to have a great deal of pain apparently, but I didn't have any. So, um, yeah, what they did initially was they, they reflated 
hated it. Um, and they sent me home and then it happened again and then it happened again in oh. pretty quick succession. So then they sent me to you know, another hospital to do a little bit more exploration. And they said, okay, we don't know what's wrong, probably nothing dramatic. Sometimes if you have a hole in your lung, this can happen. It actually happens quite a lot to sportsmen, sportswomen, tall, thin, athletic people. I'm not tall, I'm not thin, and I'm not athletic. So, you know, they nor, thought this... <laughs> this one is, obviously. I'm not tall. <laughs> but she's gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, basically, they said they were going to do this procedure where they go into your chest cavity. It's a big operation. They paint the inside of your chest cavity with like a glue. I know it sounds hideous. I can't quite believe it happened, but it did. And they glue your lung up. So, um, so that's what they did. And, and that's quite, it's quite a big operation, you know, so it takes you quite a few weeks to get over that. So whilst I was at home recovering from that, they phoned me up and said, you need to come back in. And I thought, oh, you know, why? So I immediately had a bit of a panic. I thought, what's this about? And they said they'd find I had this really rare condition called LAM. It's a long, long word, which I've chosen not to learn yeah. because, you know, don't want to be thinking about it too much. Um, and it's only women that get it. And there's only about 75 women in the UK that have got it. Wow. Um, and they didn't know how that would uh, proceed. Um, I was told by a consultant that I'd be dead within 10 years. Oh my God. It was 10 oh. years ago. It was 10 years ago, which oh is why I'm God. suddenly very happy because I'm obviously still here. But they also said that because of that, they were immediately going to have to operate on my other lung because it was in a similar condition. It's like cysts in your lungs. So I've got lots of holes. So I was immediately taken back into hospital and they did the same operation on the other side. Um, and then more of it, more of it was, I mean, it was a physical recovery that took months because I was so scared. I didn't really eat or, um, you know, I just thought I was dying. So wow. I can't even describe that feeling of being in, just terrified all the time. I was scared to breathe, talk, go anywhere, move. I couldn't sleep lying down. And I was like that for months and uh, I lost about four stone, you know, just because I was scared. Yeah. I was really scared. But I also made it my business to try and find somebody that could tell me a little bit more about the condition. And I found a professor in, uh, attached to University Nottingham Hospital and I referred myself to him and and that was when, you know, things started to improve in terms of my uh, way of coping. How did you refer yourself to him? Well, I, I basically, I just read as much as I could about the condition. There's, there's places in America, there's, there's pockets of this all over the world. Sure. Um, but he was the, the centre of excellence for England. And because it's, or for the UK, because it's such a small, rare disease, as they call it, uh, nobody knows that much about it, but his name kept coming up. So I just got his name and right, okay. I sent him an email right. yeah. and then he phoned me and he said, right, you need to come down and see me. So, so that's what I did and I'm, I still see him every year. Mm -hmm. um, but he has more of a, an intelligent way to tell people about the condition rather than scaring the living daylights out of them. You so know. When you're told, it's like when I had trouble, I had arthritis when I was 21, a reaction from food poisoning from a visit to India, and I, I was told I, would, I wouldn't walk again and I would end up in a wheelchair. And you're told you're 10 years to live. When someone tells you that, it's like, first of all, I, was, I couldn't believe I was being told that. And then it's like, 
no, it's not me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You just... This is why we're interested in the mental attitude towards things. Like, you don't want to know what the name of that thing is because some people with a disease, they become that disease or get attached to that disease. And I didn't want to... I had arthritis, but I wouldn't... It's not that I wouldn't admit it. I didn't talk about it. And I just thought, I'm going to do everything I can so that this doesn't happen to me. Hmm. And so it's interesting about this, this kind of mental side of it. It's like... I felt, how dare you say that to me when you haven't tried everything else? Right. You, know? you, you hear these stories all the time. You'll never walk again. You know, yeah. you'll never, you know, this or that. Yeah. And, and people's resilience, I mean, break through those, those things. And it almost becomes like, exactly as you said, why would you say that? Why, why not say, hey, we can try everything I and see what the results are to manage expectations, good or, or, or bad? Um, maybe they, maybe people. I don't think they do it so much now with cancer. People, they don't tell you if you've got cancer how long you've got because it's the mental thing. It's like, do you put your own own timeline on your life? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think mm-hmm. people maybe they look at the statistics. Okay, this and this and this adds up to you've got ten years. But I think there needs to be a way of telling people or or not. Maybe it's better not to tell them. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. they told me that, and it turned out to be absolute horse manure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I think. The man who who was a, a professor as well. He was a professor. You know, he clearly had uh, allegedly some intelligence. Uh, he was very much uh, old school kind of guy sitting there behind his desk. You know, just sees it all, done it all. Doesn't really understand the effect that his words would have on yeah. somebody in that situation. So um, yeah, it, it is a tricky one. But you see through life, as you say, people that inhabit a condition or a diagnosis and they make it all that's all their life becomes about and and it's up to the individual you know I have friends that have done that and they get involved with support groups and all these things and I was just no I don't want to talk about it I don't want to know about it I was intrigued how I developed it where it came from all that and all I've been able to find out is four people that worked for the same broadcasting company that I do did mm. um, Poor women have got it, yeah. One of them is very out and about about it. It's a girl called Charlotte Smith who works for BBC Radio 4. She does country file and stuff like that. And the weird thing was I was working with the same crew that she was working with. But So that's in, in uh, England. In but in Tokyo, in Dubai and in America, broadcasters, women broadcasters. Mm. So I wondered if it was to do with the timbre of my voice, you know, whether I've got, because I've got quite a low vocal kind of uh, natural vocal sound, whether that was something to do with it. They say it could be estrogen, you know, hormonally triggered. Uh, but the fact that, you know, I spent a lot of years in soundproof studios with glue and foam and all these chemicals, you know, without proper air conditioning, without proper air conditioning, then that plays into your mind. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to do radio anymore um, for that reason. I mean, speaking of that, you're, I mean, you started out your broadcast journey in just with an affection for music. Is that right? And yes, yeah, absolutely. I was in a band in the 80s and we were, you know, driving around the UK playing in various places in the back of a van with, you know, five very, well, black clad, grumpy, independent musicians who were <laughs> occasionally good fun, but most of the time really annoying. So, um, so we almost got signed, that old story. and. Uh, uh, that in itself is a story. The guy who was our A&R, your artist and repertoire guy from Virgin Records, phoned up 
to try and speak to our keyboard player on this particular day and he couldn't get him but he had to sign somebody by the end of that day or the oh end of that no. week so he went to the next people on the list and it was Bronsky Beat who you, you probably know any idea a guy called Jimmy Somerville anyway and so they got the deal and that that was their big break and I thought this is fate saying step away now because you know it's it's becoming when we were starving apart from anything else so um, so I came over here to, to Spain actually and worked uh, my first summer I was just singing around bars and things like that um, and then I came back to London um, started doing a job I hated and then just bailed back out to Scotland and thought well, what will I do now so I was sharing a flat this is a long story I mean it was like how long have you got um, anyway I was sharing a flat with this guy and I was unemployed and I was just watching TV and we had um, satellite TV had just launched in Europe at that stage and they had no women and they had no Scots so I thought you know it's like you're quite sort of ballsy when you're that age so I just wrote them a letter saying you know kill two birds with one stone give me a job so I was asked down for an interview and or an audition I suppose and um, I was told to lose 10 pounds <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, well, it was the 80s. Uh, so I did, and I got a job. So I, I moved to London, and I did that for about two years, and then MTV launched, and our channels literally was kaput overnight. So I could have stayed in London, and I was working with like John Leslie, who got Blue Peter at that stage, and, and all these other people, but I just didn't... London and I didn't really resonate, so I took my dog from Battersea Dogs Home, <laughs> and I went back to Scotland, and I got a job in local radio station in Aberdeen, uh, and then after a year, I was asked down to launch this station in Edinburgh. Um, and then I yeah, ended up working for BBC and, and all sorts of different independent stations and having a great old time. So, Alison, uh, a lot of young people nowadays are very concerned about the future. What's going to happen? I'm going to start this. What if this doesn't work out? And, it, and, you know, I'm going down this career and what will I, you know, will I make a million by the time I'm 30, all this kind of thing? And well, how will it be when I'm 40 and doom and gloom? Mm. So I think it's very interesting that, that, our li that, that young people listen to how our lives take different turnings, you know, from different experiences. So it sounds mm. like yours has been quite colourful and now you're an author as well. Yeah, well, I think when... Um when obviously my health scare stopped me in my tracks and uh, yeah I just thought I've got to do something you know and because I, I always like to be doing something I suppose yeah. just naturally my brain is, is yeah. kind of that way um, so I thought yeah I'll maybe write a book so um, so I wrote um, a fiction book based in Scotland and um, and then I was I got a the offer of a deal to publish it which was great through through an agent that I know in, in Scotland um, and then they wanted me to write a trilogy so um, so I said yeah okay I mean I thought about it long and hard because when I say I wrote a book it wasn't like I just sat down and wrote it it was like torture yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, and what, what's the book called? Uh, well it was called Frank and the Cuckoo that was my title for it it's about a girl who's living and working in London um, she's originally from Scotland and she gets a call to say that her dad's dropped dead on the 18th hole of the St Andrews Golf Course which is you know the home of golf and all that they're all mad about golf up there so she has to go home to St Andrews and, and pick up 
the piece is really, uh, so she inherits his failing restaurant and his dash hound called Frank. Um, and it's her journey, really, um, about not wanting to be sucked back into small town life. But um, it was it, also is about. It, is it, it autobiographical? Well, some, some of it is, yeah, because my, my husband's yeah. in the restaurant business, yeah. But it's actually more the kind of overall story is more about grief because it's about the relationship that she had with her father. And, uh, and I think at that time, although I didn't identify it at that time, I was probably grieving for my life the way it had been, yeah, you know, yeah. and how it had suddenly been. Hijacked. We'll be back with that in just a moment. As the owner of Pure Organic CBD, I can honestly tell you that if you're looking to buy CBD oil, whether it be for pain, sleep, anxiety, mood, emotional support, or even maybe just for your pet, there is no better product out there than our CBD at pureorganiccbd.com. Everything comes from Switzerland. It's all handmade. It's lab tested by professionals. And right now we're giving a discount for our podcast listeners with 20% off. Just use coupon code 20podcast at pureorganiccbd.com at checkout and you'll receive a 20% first time discount. Anyways, back to the show. When did you get the all clear us and did you get any... You said you didn't, there were support groups, but you didn't, you, you weren't involved in them. And, and I do believe in support from whichever way, whether it's family or friends or other support groups of people. But what, where did you dig deep in your mind to, to cope with what was going on? What, what pulled you through? I would say um, I tried to put it in a box and not think about it all the time. Um, I made a point of trying to be as healthy as I possibly could. I, we moved out the centre of the city because I was just very scared about anything to do with, you know, fumes, fumes and anything and stuff, yeah. cardiovascular. Uh, yeah. So we moved to the seaside. Um, I can't fly. That's one of the side effects of my condition. So uh, we, you know, having been in this part of Spain all those years ago, it seemed a natural place to, to get to try and get a wee bolt hole here so that we could, I could drive down and spend as much time as, as possible here. So um, not just not thinking about it, not talking about it. I didn't tell many people about it because nobody understands what it is anyway, including the people that are supposedly researching it. So I didn't want people chattering and, and getting the wrong end of the stick. And yeah. I just wanted to lead, you know, as normal a life as I possibly can. And mm -hmm. yeah. Because that sounds like what men do a lot. Men will conceal a problem just and just go about life like everything's fine. But, put it in a box. Yeah, put it in a box, keep moving on. And, I, you know, you hear these stories about as they get older, these boxes start to come undone. Yeah. And uh, was there anything like that with you? Was there, you compartmentalized it so much, and then one day it just kind of jumped out and reared its ugly... Well, it was always there and always on my mind and always, always, um, you know, I turned down a lot of uh, opportunities because... I knew that I didn't want to be in an enclosed space or a, um, and I suppose when COVID started actually that, that really flared things up a bit because if you remember the initial message that we were all told it was going to wipe us all out basically. So I mean I literally didn't see anybody for about a year, a year and a bit. I was in the house and I didn't go to a shop, a supermarket, you know, I was one of those shielded people. And that, that did make me think, I had to think about it at that point because mm -hmm. I was terrified that it would kill me because they didn't know if you were to get COVID anyway, you wouldn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, they, they were, respiratory yeah, they were uh, saying there's yeah. anybody with complications in yeah. that respiratory area. I mean, it's, yeah, it could be uh, gravely serious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, I think it certainly that I became very withdrawn again and, and it's not been until this year 
probably in the past well I had I got COVID in January actually and after that obviously I survived and it wasn't as hideous as, as and I had all my jabs and everything um, so that's yeah my confidence has come back but only very recently and also I think because the 10 years is up you know the guy that told me that I'd be dead by now well screw you pal uh, you know I'm not and, uh, and I've never felt better and um, and I haven't don't have the all clear as such but what I do have is an annual checkup in at this university hospital in Nottingham, and I've got the opportunity then to quiz this this guy, Professor Simon Johnson's his name. Um, and there are lots of different um, ways that this thing can um, progress. And the older you are, the better your prognosis. Oh, that's good. Mm. Usually, usually mm -hmm. with most diseases, it's the other way around. I mean, literally, if you were a 25-year-old uh, woman and you were diagnosed, then they would instantly put you onto the lung transplant list. Wow. And I knew a couple of, I met a couple of women, one of them that lives very close to me, um, who had a double lung transplant. So, you know, the, I am at the very, very lucky end of wow. the spectrum. Wow. Um, and, you know, and I know that many aren't as yeah. fortunate. And what do you do to, to keep healthy and to keep well? Well, I do, um, I, I do a lot of walking every day. I walk f probably four or five miles because mm -hmm. um, we live on the beach. You know, um, I do yoga with your good self because mm -hmm. I, I discovered yoga with Fran here and it was, I just absolutely love it. It's, you know, it's just, I would say that's changed my life to mm -hmm. an extent. It really has. Yeah. And I've had a couple of rosen, a few rosen sessions with Fran as well, which is another, just anything. I'll just keep a very open mind as to any kind of, process that you can embark on to change the way you feel or the way you're you know the way you go into the world and, and interact it feels with other good people. probably to make that commitment to yourself and stick to it to be as healthy as possible especially um you know and if people could just learn how to do that without being diagnosed with something yeah i think help. often people mm. wait until they get a, some sort of scare before they do something which is sure. such a shame and yeah, we kind of go to the doctor, fix me, yeah. you know. Yeah, I've than... been smoking for 40 years, yeah. and now this happened, fix yeah. me, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it's, well, it doesn't work like that. No. It's human nature, yeah. though. I think you feel immortal until something really gives you a shock. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, you know, I, I, in my limited experience, that certainly... Um, and I've got friends that still have a very hedonistic lifestyle, and I, you know, half of me is jealous. Yes. And the other half is like you know well it, unfortunately at some point it probably will catch up with people and you don't want them to to have a scare yeah. but you can't tell somebody you've got to they've got to find out in their own really yeah, you know because yeah, otherwise so. yeah you just feel like you're a preaching kind of you know yeah, I think some people though they you know they they drink and smoke till the day they die in their nineties. So there's yeah. you know yeah. it's, it's there's no argument. Life's not fair like that. Life's yeah. not fair like that. You don't yeah. know what you're going to get. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you have any jealousy when you see people? Healthy career, you know, going crazy. No, you know, no. no I, I mean, I was lucky that, <clears throat> excuse me, it didn't happen to me till I was, <clears throat> excuse me, 50. So I had, you know, pretty interesting and, and good fun uh, time career-wise. And uh, yeah, and I like to, you know, I don't want to do the same thing forever. You know, I never yeah. did really. I, you know, I kind of went from... Uh, Mum had 11 jobs in my first year out of school because the oil industry had just started in Aberdeen. So, <laughs> what were they? Oh my God, I was a bilingual secretary, but I couldn't speak any languages and I couldn't type. So that only lasted about three hours. I mean, it was a ridiculous time. You know, there was so many, so many opportunities to work. Temping and oh, I was a receptionist. I was oh, I was a recruitment um, consultant. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, sold car telephones before mobiles became the thing, um, just so that I got a car. 
that didn't last long. <coughs> None of them lasted long. But it sounds like that creativity, that wanting to sing, to perform, to it was still in you. And I think that's really nice that you're in touch with that. Because mm. some people, they go into a job and they might be a civil servant or something for years and they use, lose touch with their passion or whatever. So that's really lovely that you're, you've done all that and you're, and you're an author and you're still writing. Yeah, correct? yeah, I'm still yeah. writing, and um, my first book has been um, picked up by a film director who wants to turn it into a film. Fantastic. Which is great. Yeah. Um, so the screenplay's being kind of worked on at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I'm also, uh, music's my real thing, yeah. and uh, so I'm... You want to be in a band? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a circle of life. Yeah. There you go. No, I want to write a musical, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Because I live in Edinburgh, so the Edinburgh F Festival is a place where you can very easily put on a shoe, a small shoe to give, you know, get a two in the water of whether or not you're onto something and uh, yeah, yeah and I've always wanted to, to do that so uh, my daughter-in-law-to-be is a musical theatre performer so it seems like a and natural step, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So I'm going on a songwriting uh, intensive week course when I get back. thing about, you know, people have, when they grow up they have dreams and then as they get a bit older out of school possibly, they have goals, right? And these goals are sometimes, yeah, uh, manifested because of desires, right? And every time you pluck from that goals side, you give up a small part of the dream side, right? And it sounds like with you, and what's beautiful is that you've gone for the dream, right? <laughs> you, it is so cool, and you've had this disease come up, and you still go for the dream. You, you yeah. still Hasn't write a musical. You. I mean, yeah. I couldn't even imagine. And, and, and it's just so cool that you, you've been but able you just, to do that. I think, I think yeah, I, I think that's probably what doing something, you know, having an issue like I had uh, does as well. It makes you realize that you've got to do that. Because mm. none of us knew whether, you know, we're going to get run over by a bus tomorrow. So you've got to follow absolutely every one of your dreams. And if you fail, so what? At least you've done it, you know? Yeah. Not, I never want to be sitting there going, what would have happened if? Yeah. The, the span of the stories that you told us of playing music out of the back of a van, which is something I think every teenager secretly You did that as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, we were all over the place. Played at the Roxy Theater uh, in front of Fred Durst. Uh, played at the Whiskey. Um, been going, driving up to parties in high school and heard cars from other schools drive by playing our music. Oh, it was just like, a, it's a weird feeling. But yeah, to go from that um, and then, you know, just using a job as a stepping stone towards your dreams and then eventually getting to taste some of them, just amazing. And what you've done to overcome this rare diagnosis and um, put the critics aside and just, you know, stop believing the worst and start embracing what could be the best. Um, I think it's a powerful message um, that you shared with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. No, not thank at all. It's much. been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, And where can we find me. you? Where can we find you? Yeah, you? I want to know more about these books. Oh, well, you can get the books on um, Amazon at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. I've actually just got the copyright back because I had a bit of an issue with the publishers. But um, but the books, I think, are still available on Amazon. And yeah, I've got uh, alisonsdiary.com is, is my, um, you know, my website and blog and, and just keeps things up to date on there so that's probably the best and on Twitter Alison's Diary as well great lovely thank you so much Alison yeah. pleasure thank you thanks for listening to This World is Mental this episode's privately sponsored by Pure Organic CBD go to pureorganiccbd.com use promotional code 20podcast for 20% off your first order you can follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned here for more episodes thanks for listening <laughs>